Okay, Acts, we're finally out of Acts 10, and uh, we're just going to talk more about Acts 10, but in chapter 11, where Peter reports to the church. And so, Acts chapter 11, uh, beginning with the first verse, going all the way through verse 18. Now the apostles and brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order, that explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and it was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send a Joppa and bring Simon, who was called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. The word of the Lord. Uh, Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to the truth of your word, that it would uh, take deep root in our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It seems very strange to us to think of Christianity, uh, well, honestly, apart from the West, right? Uh, even in, in America, uh, Christianity uh, has a certain reputation. So when I went to school in England, um, back it up a little bit, One su- I spent a summer in Russia uh, in, between, uh, in a city called Ivanova, but also Moscow and St. Petersburg. And uh, in Ivanova is the major engineering university. Uh, even though it's still Russia, it's still set up like the Soviet Union, where everything is sort of like, so if you're an engineer, you go to this, this school. And while I was there, I mean, here are these very highly educated students. And after spending about 15 minutes with me, they would ask, you're American? Yes. Are you a farmer or a millionaire? <laughs> so I just, <laughs> duh. Uh, so I just thought, you know, it's, it's just uh, a holdover from the old Soviet bloc, and that's the way that they think of us. And then I moved to England, and after going to the pub for the first time with my classmates in England, they said, you're American. Are you a farmer or a millionaire? <laughs> um, basically, they were startled to see that I didn't wear cowboy boots, and uh, George W. Bush was president at the time, and so they just thought that... I just wanted to blow everything up and um, yeehaw and watch out, here I come. Um, the bad part was I am like that. Um, 
So it didn't help us abroad. But uh, what was very interesting is the manifestation of faith in Great Britain, uh, in Russia for that matter, uh, versus the manifestation of faith in the United States. So for instance, so this is even a section in the West, because of course Great Britain is still very much part of the West, but um, in England, if you're the local vicar of the Church of England, you can, at will, simply waltz into the local elementary school and start telling kids about Jesus, legally. There's nothing that they can do to stop you. In fact, most local elementary schools have a weekly assembly where the local Church of England vicar comes in and gives a little bit of, of a talk. Um, now, in spite of that legal right, it's almost never exercised. Now, the irony of that is in America, we do that even when it's illegal, right? Uh, I mean, the church in America pretty much is like, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna go up uh, against you. And so I, I, every once in a while I would think, what would Amer- the American church look like if, uh, if we had the same allowances that England had? Now, you could say, ah, we changed the face of the nation. And we may well do that, uh, except if we learn anything from church history, it's that whenever there's been opposition, and I'm not talking about opposition in the sense, like right now in the United States, we're not dying in the streets. We're not dying on the shores of Libya. Um, But yet in America, in our culture, there is a certain hostility toward, uh, you know what, I would even go beyond saying Christianity, a hostility toward Anything that they perceive as rigid or dogmatic, the key word there being perception, anything they perceive as being rigid or, or dogmatic, uh, that anything like that. The other day I was reading, um, uh, was it, it, may, it was either the San Francisco Chronicle or the LA Times, and I was reading an article on Bruce Jenner. You know Bruce Jenner? I mean, like, every man would kill to be Bruce Jenner until now. Uh, <laughs> But part of the article was, uh, part of the, one of the subsections was rules about talking about Bruce Jenner. And I thought, says who? Right? Who makes up these rules? What do you mean I can't say this about? And one of the rules was, you can't say that he's crazy. I'm like, well, then what's the point in talking about Bruce Jenner? Like, I mean, that poor guy. I mean, really, we should have a lot of compassion for Bruce Jenner, but the story is so, in the car accident and all that, it's too uh, fantastic to be believed. But in, in the church, wherever there's been uh, some opposition, uh, the church has flourished. So uh, under Constantine, you remember from your, uh, remember this from ninth grade world history? Uh, you, uh, Constantine issued the, uh, uh, an edict of toleration where Christianity actually didn't become the official, official religion, although it did by um, uh, de facto. Uh, the religion of the empire, but Christians for the first time could move freely. And what happened was that there was a great expansion. There's a wonderful book called The Barbarian Conversion about how the gospel went out throughout the Roman Empire. And because of the peace of Rome, uh, the Pax Romana, man, this is like flashback to Miss Jernel. Um, here we are. Uh, the, the gospel was uh, not impeded from... Uh, unimpeded from going out into the hinterlands, but once it kind of made it to where they thought, let's let's make it, you know, it's made it, uh, there was this resting on the laurels sort of attitude of, well, everything is fine and everything is complacent. And even in the United States, we, we felt that certainly uh, post-World War II. Uh, I thought I was real smart uh, in college, and I took a class over the summer, which at UVA we'd call a gut, and it was called Elvis Presley in American Culture. And I thought, sign me up. 
And so uh, the class was full of athletes, and, um, <laughs> and when I was there, there was a huge cheating scandal at the University of Virginia, and if, you may or may not know this. If you get caught cheating at UVA, you're out. You're just out. You're, they, they, they kick you out. And, uh, and so every once in a while when you meet someone that says, oh, well, I transferred to William, Mar- William and Mary after three years at Virginia, you know they're a cheater. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, I took this class, and I thought this is surely going to be a gut. And um, we got our first exam, uh, midterm, and I expected to apply sort of sociological principles uh, I love being a sociology major because you just generalize, right? You just you make it up and make it sound smart. And, uh, and the question was literally, in 19, da-da-da-da-da, Elvis Presley released Love Me Tender, Love Me True. What was on the B side? I mean, the whole, like, people started dying. Uh, I mean, you, you could just feel, it was just, it was so awful. I ended up talking about being a snowplow parent. I actually went and told the professor that he was crazy and needed to be easier on us, and turned out he was. But in that class, one of the things that actually came out of it that I learned a lot about was sort of the, you know, the trajectory of American culture and the church. And so after World War II, uh, the church had been somewhat strong but dented in the early part of the 20th century. But after World War II, there was a real revitalization in the church because of World War II, right? People were coming back wanting answers. Lots of people were having kids, growing them up in the church. The church was still very much the center uh, of the community. And then uh, the 1960s rolled around. Elvis was big in the 50s, but when was Elvis not big? The 60s, right? Where did Elvis go in the 60s? Las Vegas, right? He went to Las Vegas. He did a little show in Hawaii. Um, But then all of a sudden, like Elvis was nobody for about a dozen years, and then in the 70s, all of a sudden, he took off again. Why? Did he change? Did he get more edgy? No, he actually got much kind of, ho- I mean, the jumpsuit and the ninja moves and uh, all that. Vietnam happened. Vietnam, and so there was this sense of wanting to get back in touch with faith and something outside of us and to be able to, to connect. And so whenever there's been adversity, initially, um, when things are opened up, things go well, but it's an adversity that tends to be uh, the, the crucible uh, by which uh, the church sees growth. That's why you see such explosive growth uh, around the world. Uh, there are, uh, I mean, in, in China alone, uh, there are millions upon millions upon millions of Christians uh, in China. In fact, if you want to look at it statistically, China may be the most Christian nation in the world. Comrade Jesus. So so when there's adversity, the the church tends tends to grow. And really, there had not been anything plaguing the early church up to this point. There hadn't even been arguments over who would be in charge or uh, or any sort of structural issues. We talked about before that when uh, problems arose in the church about the widows being neglected, the church responded readily by raising up deacons in order to serve the needs of those in the community so that the elders, the priests, uh, could, could continue on. But at this point, uh, the Christian community uh, is not entirely Jewish. Now, how do we know that? Uh, we know that uh, because of Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well in Samaria. Right? Remember, she went back to the village and said, I just met a man who's told me everything I've ever done. 
which is kind of a funny joke because everybody knew what she'd ever done. And then, um, uh, and it said, oh, many people in that village believe because of her testimony. Right? So we know that there's a pocket of believers in Samaria, but they're an outpost. We know the Syrophoenician woman, uh, where Jesus had that very, and we'll have to talk about this one day, the very awkward interaction uh, about the crumbs under the table and the dogs and all that, and she was not uh, Jewish. Uh, but for the most part, uh, Christianity was not seen as other when it came to Judaism. It was just a part of of Judaism in the same way that the Sadducees or the Pharisees uh, or anybody, any one of those parties, that there was a Christian party within Judaism. Now, clearly Jesus had already begun to clear the way uh, in saying there's something different about this. I mean, there's a reason why the New Testament is called new, right? This is something totally new, and the church was already grappling with it because people from all over the world had come to uh, Jerusalem for Pentecost, and even though they were uh, Jewish, they were from all over the world, and so you're still dealing with different cultural uh, ethoses, and yet uh, there was no question. If you, were Jew- if you were a Christian, you'd be Jewish too, which meant that you'd be circumcised, you would uh, do the various purification rites. You would try to keep uh, all of uh, the laws, uh, both uh, dietary laws as well as your everyday laws, uh, to live uh, your lives. And certainly you, you understood the priority of things. So often when Jesus healed the man at the pool of Bethsaida, uh, when did Jesus heal that guy? The Sabbath. And of course, when they see this guy had been an invalid for over 30 years, I don't know about you, but if I knew a guy who was an invalid for over 30 years and I saw him walking, I would think, whoa. Uh, but their question was, who healed you on the Sabbath? Right? So there was at least a right ordering of priorities when Jesus came along saying, look, the Sabbath is important. The Sabbath is absolutely important for rest. I mean, one of the things that, um, I mean, now that's a good question to ask. How do you find rest? How do you find rest? I mean, there actually would be something really great about having a day set aside where the community actually accommodated and said, you know what, today we're not going to have soccer games. Right? Today we're not going to, we're going to close everything down so there's not even any pressure to sort of get ahead. Even if you wanted to go grocery shopping today, you can't. Uh, that would be really great. Now, that would be great for a couple Sabbaths, and then I'd start some underground black market uh, for like an underground soccer league uh, for everybody to get rid of some of the energy. Um, but, uh, but the disciples understood the priority of rest and what the Sabbath, uh, who the Sabbath was created for, why there's a Sabbath, uh, and Jesus even you know, plucking uh, uh, grain uh, from the field and eating it on the Sabbath, which the Pharisees and scribes railed against saying, you're working on the Sabbath. And that stuff like that we say is ridiculous now, but back then it wasn't. It wasn't ridiculous at all, because if you have a whole system upon which your life is built around, where you can actually tangibly uh, gauge, how am I doing? How am I doing? Well, I didn't heal anybody on the Sabbath. I'm doing great, right? Or, uh, or I'm keeping the Sabbath. I'm keeping the dietary laws. I made sure when the hamburger came, the cheese was separate. Uh, everything's going well. Uh, and... Um, I mean, even to the extent some people who uh, grew up in Birmingham uh, would tell me that on, uh, when there was a larger Jewish community, uh, it's very funny in towns like Beaufort, South Carolina, um, 
there used to be a very active synagogue, and now there are Episcopalians. And so in, like at every other wedding reception, some uncle will get up and say, as we say in the Episcopal church, mazel tov. <laughs> um, uh, but they would say growing up in Birmingham that on the Sabbath, if something needed to be done, they would call one of the children from the neighborhood who was Gentile to come over and turn an oven on and then come turn it off or, or you know, flip a switch or something like that. Uh, the kids were fine to do it. They made money. Um, they got paid the next day. Um, but uh, they were happy. They were happy to do it. Uh, so, but if, if that's, that actually is, brings a sense of comfort, doesn't it? Okay, I mean, I, I would love, uh, I, I thought checklists would be really good for me, and I used to carry little sticky notes in my pocket to sort of remind me of all the things I need to do. And at the end of the day, I would look at it again, and it would remind me of all that I didn't do. And so I got rid of the checklist. But for most of us, a checklist is a really helpful way of saying, how am I doing in life? And yet, if you're like me, at the end of the day, that which was meant to help you, the law, turns out to be your undoing. And the more you try to gain control of it and the bigger your checklist gets, the more unwieldy your life seems. So... To step back from that mindset was, was a radical thing. And the, the, the disciples, the Christians, were beginning to step back from that mindset already, clearly, uh, because of all of the interaction and the strife and tension between the Pharisees and scribes and the Christian community. But they are nonetheless very alarmed by what they hear about Paul over, I mean, uh, Peter over, well, they're already alarmed about Paul. That's one thing. Uh, and Paul's headed up to Antioch which is up in Turkey, and then Peter is over on the Mediterranean coast, and while he's there, he meets with uh, the centurion and uh, Simon while he's there, and Simon becomes a Christian, and Peter baptizes him. Now, when um, Peter goes up to Jerusalem, Jerusalem <clears throat> Luke tells us that the circumcision party criticized him. So in one verse, we find that what's happening in the Christian community they're beginning to form party factions, right? So anytime somebody tells you, oh, I wish we could get back to the early church where they never dealt with party factions, say, you're a liar, according to Acts 11.2. Okay, so it's in our nature to do that. So already there was a party forming, not because of Peter, but it had already been in existence, which meant God was already preparing the church's hearts for doing this great move and opening up the gospel and mission to the Gentiles and, uh, but they confronted him when he arrived by saying one sentence. You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Which, as a Jew, is the worst thing you could say about somebody. It was terrible. I mean, there are all kinds of terrible things in the Old Testament. And then there would be a purification rite. Right? This is like the worst thing you could possibly do. This is really bad. And so uh, Peter immediately on his heels, hey, how are you? It's nice to see you too, uh, says uh, he begins to explain to them in order. So very carefully, he begins to walk through the dream saying, look, I'm with you. The first time I saw this vision, I thought it was a bad burrito. I didn't know what it was, but the Lord revealed it to me multiple times in order that I might see that indeed this is where the Lord is moving. And we know that. Now, what I would hope in at every single church meeting I ever, gave to, I ever go to uh, um, 
it's this. Uh, when they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Uh, which is indicative of the fact that God was working in their hearts and opened their eyes to what was happening. Furthermore, today, uh, in a lot of the controversies that plague uh, the church, and look, there's no new heresy under the sun. No new heresy. So this heresy that we're dealing with right here with the circumcision party is called um, the Judaizers. And uh, I preached about it a little bit when we talked about 2 Corinthians. Uh, These were Christians uh, who went around saying, if you're going to be a Christian, you have to be circumcised, you have to keep the dietary, you have to do all of these things. So Christianity basically became Judaism for Gentiles. That's what was going on. Now, of course, the message of the church, the official message, what we're going to get to down the road when the first church council meets at Jerusalem, is that that's not true. That's not true at all. That that those things were for a particular people group in a particular period of time. Uh, And in fact, I've mentioned this before, things like the dietary laws, those uh, were things that were only particular uh, to the people of Israel. So if you were... uh, if you were Greek and you were visiting Israel, you didn't have to keep the dietary laws. It would be hard to find somebody who would sell you some food that wasn't kosher, uh, but nonetheless, there was no expectation that you would keep kosher. Uh, in fact, there was no expectation that any Jew would eat with you. And yet, uh, what that was particular to, and if you look at the Old Testament, there are lots of ideas about, well, why couldn't they eat shellfish? Why couldn't they eat pork? Why couldn't they... Why couldn't they live in Alabama, basically? Uh, then, uh, I mean, we can make arguments about dietary laws and things like that, but, I mean, they would know that you've got to, eventually they'd learn real quick uh, that uh, you have to cook pork all the way through or you'll get trichinosis. Uh, really, if you look at it, it's, I hope this doesn't sound trite, but because God said so, right? It was just a way that the Jews were able to differentiate themselves from everybody else in the world, I mean, these dietary laws are not easy to keep for a reason because there is a differentiation. I mean, if you're a vegetarian and you go over to somebody's house, it can get awkward real quick for dinner, right? Uh, It was very funny uh, if Matt and Holly are here. uh, When they first came to Birmingham, I had to tell people they're vegetarians. And uh, and the responses uh, range from, oh, no, to, uh, oh, that's okay. We'll just have chicken then. Um, uh, So... I mean, if that doesn't make sense to us, uh, then, um, then, then how does it make sense uh, to someone who would come in from off uh, to be uh, with the Jews? It doesn't, but it was a way of uh, differentiating, uh, differentiating themselves from anybody else. But what we find in Jesus is that God has come near, and now your identity is in Jesus and not outward conformity. So that's why Jesus says, look, it's not what goes into a person that defiles them. It's what comes out. It's, it's a matter of the heart. James spends a lot of time on this. That it's what's, is that the heart uh, will show you exactly what kind of person and who you are. Jesus called the Pharisees and the scribes whitewashed sepulchers. On the outside, you're beautiful. You've got it all together. You're able to maintain the law outwardly. Uh, but like sepulchers, inwardly, you're all rotten bone. Right? You're on the inside, uh, you're dead. And so maybe it could be said that, um, that for Christians, uh, we're all rotten bone on the outside and inside, we're looking good. Uh, indeed, because God now dwells 
uh, within us. And so this first heresy uh, that began to plague the church, now today, although I, I, I say this and then someone shows me an article from that says, actually, there are churches that are requiring X, Y, and Z for their uh, Jewish-type things. Uh, I have a friend on Facebook who won't spell out the word God, G-O-D. They'll put G hyphen D, because in the Old Testament, you were never to mention uh, God's name. You were, always, you, you were never supposed to say Yahweh. You were supposed to you could use Adonai or, or one of the other biblical names um, for, for God. Uh, so, uh, so even today, and, and I always feel a bit nervous around them because uh, I try to talk to them, and if I say God, they sort of cringe. And I'm just like, gosh, that's like the sweetest word in, in my vocabulary. Stop being so uptight, sinner. Uh, but, <laughs> and I mean, you can tell. You can tell when you're around people and they're trying to bind your conscience and, and saying, you know, it's like, hey, I applaud you. Uh, I mean, there was a lady in our parish in Beaufort who I ought to name by name because she just gave me such a hard time who would complain if we served pork at a parish-wide event, and she'd say, the Bible is against this. And I said, well, let me just say this. I'm against you. So, uh, I mean, we got a long road to hoe, lady. If I was what I ate, I'd be about 70% pork. Uh, so let's just let's make this work. So... So there are, there are people out there that are trying to impose those, but it's not as, as obvious today how this heresy works itself out. Uh, the way that it works itself out now, and we talk about this a lot because it's worth talking about, is that you'll go to a lot of churches and you'll hear from the pulpit and in the ministries that God's grace to you is unmerited and free. All you simply have to do is say yes. Receive Jesus he comes into your life. There's nothing you can do to earn God's grace. Here it is. It's a gift. And then you do that, and then they say, yoink, now that you're a Christian, let me tell you everything that you have to do as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here are your obligations, the litany of it. Now, our hearts are prone to go that way. I mean, when people first come to Jesus, I mean, especially in their, uh, if they're a teenage or an adult, I mean, they are, they're ready to go, right? They're all of a sudden, they, they want to cook breakfast on Sunday mornings. They want to sing in the choir. They want to do all of these things and get involved as much as they can because they, one, God bless them. They want to do that, but they think, I want this newfound faith to be demonstrated in my life. They're, they're doing all these wonderful things. And then after a while, like the rest of us, it, it becomes a lot harder to love on people. Uh, and uh, it gets awful early on Sunday mornings to come in and, and fix breakfast. And when, if you're like my family, I'm ordering for five people, and I'm like, I want eggs on this one, but no grits and this. And what's wrong with Charlotte's toast? Why isn't she, why isn't she making more toast? And uh, I told her that the other day. Uh, but anyway, so, uh, you know, so you've got all these complicated. And after a while, you're just like, what? Uh, and you just want to fall back from from everything because you've been led to believe in a lot of churches, not the Advent, but in a lot of churches that Christianity is primarily about doing. Now that Jesus has done this for you, what are you going to do for him? Right? Uh, I saw a photograph. Some of you all know Russell Kendrick has just been elected. He's the rector of St. Stephen's. He's just elected the bishop of uh, the Central Gulf Coast. Pretty nice gig. 
And uh, so he and his wife are going to be moving down there. And uh, I got on a, a website that was showing the article about it. And, um, and there was a photograph on something totally unrelated. And it had this group of clergy uh, who I noticed, one, were very poorly dressed and looked uh, disheveled, like they'd all gotten out of bed and rolled down a hill. And then, uh, and then there was a banner over them that said, uh, you are God's hands and feet. Without you, God can do nothing. And I thought, this isn't a good advertisement uh, 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 for this. Uh, but this idea that God is incapable of doing anything in this world without us. Now, this is not to sort of knock us down a couple pegs or knock us all the way down, um, because God in His mercy does use us. He does use us, but this understanding that, um, that if not for us, God would be in big trouble. And of course, what Christianity says, if it weren't for God, we would all be in big trouble. And so the way that the, the circumcision party manifests itself today is through taking Christianity and adding stuff to it. Christianity plus anything is not Christianity. Jesus plus anything is not Jesus. Because if you begin to add things on what Je- who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us, then you not only rob Jesus of his glory, you nullify the effectiveness of the cross. So if God's gift is free and unmerited, then it's free and unmerited. It's yours. It's yours. Now, what does that mean for our lives? Because the question is, does that mean that I can just go out and do whatever it is that I want to do as a Christian? I would actually challenge us. Somebody who's sitting here today asked me a very good question. The heresy there is called antinomianism. And the heresy of antinomianism, antinomianism, Yes, uh, antinomianism um, is that uh, Jesus has died for you. You don't need to worry about anything. You just go eat, drink, and be merry and, and live it up. Uh, and this person asked me, have you actually ever met somebody like that? Have you actually met somebody that is a Christian and then just goes out and does the craziest things? Now, I have met people who have done that at, in periods in their life, but I've always seen the hound of heaven the Holy Spirit, go after them and drag them back. Right? So for those of you who have wayward friends and family, pray about that. Uh, but somebody who claims the name of Jesus uh, and God is actually residing in their life, uh, you can't get too far away from the cross. Right? You can't get too far away from the cross. I'm going to give you an inappropriate story that illustrates this and is maybe a little too transparent. Lauren, you might want to leave. Just kidding. Uh, when I was in college, there was this girl. I was the president of my fraternity. She was the president of our sorority. And at UVA, you married KDs and you dated DZs. And, um, and she was the president of, of DZ. And uh, she was a very sweet girl. Uh, her name was Kat. And she, had a li- uh, she drove this really nice convertible and had a personalized license plate that said, Per. I just want you to know what I'm getting into here. Uh, <clears throat> Let me just say, Kat lived up to every expectation. Uh, she was a really remarkable woman. And um, she's now an editor for Vanity Fair. Go figure. So um, 
we, um, she's very accomplished, and she was very smart, and uh, she was interested in me. Uh, the, the big joke, uh, one of my family members said, we were, I was lamenting uh, something, and we were about dating, and we were talking about type, and uh, a family member said, you know what your type is? Any girl who's interested in you. That's your type. That really ought to be a type. So Kat was interested. I was interested in her. And uh, Kat was not exactly the best influence spiritually on me. And so we went out one night to a bar in Charlottesville called Coops, which is still there. And uh, I had a good buddy named Steve Rays who was with me. And as the night went on, as it normally does in college, Cat uh, said, would you walk me home? And I said, I would be honored to walk you home. I mean, Steve Ray's put a death grip on my thigh in that table like you wouldn't believe. And I was just kind of looking at him and he was just like, don't, don't do it. He's a good friend. Uh, but like most good friends, I knew better. And so I, I, I walked Cat home and, uh, and I, I just, you know, and you need to know that in the midst of this, I was going through a crisis of faith where I, the night before I was lying in bed thinking, maybe I ought to just not bail on Christianity, but take a little break. Take a little break. I've got all these wonderful worldly opportunities in front of me, and I know I'm called to ministry, um, but let's take the LSATs and eat, drink, and be merry, uh, for tomorrow we'll sue somebody. And um, I, I mean, as crazy as it sounds, this is where I was. And so for this opportunity to develop the next night at Coops at uh, 1.30 in the morning, I thought things are working out. And uh, so I walked Kat uh, back to her house, and uh, she invited me uh, upstairs, and I said, yes. And I literally walked in. I, did, I got as far as the doorway, and I just, I don't know why, because it was like a cartoon. Like, I, I saw myself continuing to walk, but I had stopped. And I just said, I, I'm sorry. Uh, I've got to go. And I literally ran home and crawled into bed and cried like a baby. Why? Uh, Steve Ray's hand was not enough to stay me, but the Lord's was. And as far as I, as hard as I had tried to run away from the cross, now that's not to say that there aren't times where we absolutely still say, we're going upstairs, we're heading up. Uh, but if the Holy Spirit is in your life, you feel him. You know him. You have a relationship with him. And you can feel his tug and his pull and his direction and as far as you might try to run from God, God is constantly seeking you out. So when you've got a lost sheep, what does the shepherd do? Does he say, oh, well, good luck. You know, maybe she'll bring you back in her convertible that says purr, right? Uh, in, her, in her wolf's costume. Uh, maybe, you know, come on back. Um, but, um, and, and it, I mean, it wasn't her at all. It was me. Uh, and so, no, the shepherd, the shepherd goes and pursues the sheep, uh, and doesn't uh, just sort of pick them up gently, if you've heard my sermon on the 23rd Psalm, uh, but actually the shepherd has to subdue the sheep, to tackle them to the ground, and to put them on their shoulders, and they don't go willingly. Uh, they don't go willingly. Uh, there was such a vivid, wonderful image yesterday. Um, the girls and I uh, were watching The Prince of Egypt, the cartoon movie about uh, starring Sandra Bullock, uh, uh, about um, Moses in Egypt. And the thing that I really thought remarkable, it's a really great movie, was when they were going through the Red Sea, the cartoonist had the livestock blindfolded. And I thought, that's, 
that's a really good interpretation. Why? Because if the donkeys and the cattle and the sheep saw the sea spread apart and the walls of water, uh, what would they do? We're out of here. You know, forget this. We'd rather, we'll, we'll take our chances with Pharaoh's chariots, uh, but we can't stay here. But uh, God sometimes actually has to subdue us and blindfold us uh, because uh, on our own will, we're not going to go the way that we need to go. And yet he doesn't leave us where we are. He actually subdues us. And so this message of the gospel of God's gratuitous grace to a broken and fallen world is still scandalous. It's still scandalous. And uh, I was talking uh, to Paul Walker when he was here, and uh, he doesn't mind me sharing this with you. Uh, he said, how was the transition from being a canon to the dean? I said, great. Uh, uh, nobody uh, got mad and left, and nobody, I didn't get mad and fire anybody, and it was great. It was uh, lovely. And I was like, well, how was yours? He goes, terrible. And I said, can I qualify my answer. Maybe it wasn't that, you know, I felt so bad about saying that it was great, but what he said is the first day he came in from the job, there was a petition five pages long asking for his resignation, his first day as rector. And do you know what it had to do with? You preach the gospel too much. You need to tell us more about how we ought to live our lives. You need to take a firmer stance against this. You need to do this, 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 and this. And what surprised me most of all, I said, well, who were these people? And he said, the majority of them were in their 20s. Well, that's a story for another time. Um, But even today, uh, in uh, in a place that you would think is pretty liberal and open-minded like Charlottesville, Virginia, um, to hear about... God's free grace is still scandalous, right? It's, it's, a, it's a foolishness to the Greeks, and it's a stumbling block uh, to the Jews. And even unto today, uh, this cornerstone who is Jesus, uh, to the world, it, it, it doesn't make sense. And so when the gospel is preached, you can expect opposition, especially from within the church, because the circumcision party is alive and well. The first heresy never went anywhere. Uh, It's still amongst us. Um, But again, we testify and speak uh, to what God has shown us uh, in his word. Uh, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Questions, comments, concerns? I thought at least you'd ask for more sordid details uh, about... My very brief romantic life at the University of Virginia. Okay. We're not going anywhere. Yeah. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. <laughs>